Good morning. Here we are, Philippians chapter 4 today. We're right back in Paul's wonderful letter to the Philippians and Philippian Bible Church, Philippi Bible Church. We're the last chapter, so if you're there, um, I want you to be ready to work through the text with me this morning. Paul is starting to wrap up the letter in Philippians chapter 4. At this point, he's covered all the main themes, and now he has a few brief final exhortations, and there's a problem uh, at Philippi Bible Church that he wants to solve. And after that, he just has thank yous and greetings and things like that. But it's all wonderful. It's all useful. It's all practical stuff for us as we pursue our walk, just as our forebears in Christ walked in the first century. 2,000 years ago, living for Jesus, glorifying his name. So what we find in chapter 4 are the final things that just come to Paul's mind. The, the common thread, though, is our overarching theme of Philippians, which is joy. Joy is something of a test for us as God's people. We should be joyful in the Lord. And if we're not, we've probably got some soul work to do because that should be the normal state of a Christian that's walking faithfully with the Lord. So if we're not doing that, if we don't have that joyful heart in the Lord, we need to work on that. We need to fix what ails us. And fixing what ails us, it should be an individual pursuit, but also there's a corporate aspect to that in terms of the church body. The church should be a joyful place. It should be a place where there's joy in the Lord. And if there's not, there's a problem. And there wasn't that much joy at Philippi Bible Church, so Paul wants to address the cause of that. So that's a really important part of this part of the text today. Anything that robs us of joy in the Lord has to be addressed and dealt with. That's true personally, and that's true corporately, okay? So Paul is our model here because he's the apostle of joy. I mean, he was a joyful man, not perfectly joyful. He had his down times. He talks about that in his epistles. But the basic characteristic of his life, even in very dire circumstances and suffering, was joy, joy in the Lord. He was able to do that. And that's because his joy was not in his circumstances, but in the Lord, And that's really the key idea here. So as we look at our text this morning, we're seeing part of Paul's joy spilling over into love for other people. And you can see that right away in verse 1, where he says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and my crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. So joy and love. Those are sister virtues, really. They belong together. When joy and love are growing along with faith, they they feed each other and encourage each other. They complement each other beautifully. So joy in the Lord is a condition of the soul that allows us to love others. It allows love to flourish, to grow in us and overspill towards other people. That's why Paul is so genuine a person, because he just has so much joy, and that turns into love, and he can just express himself freely and be honest about himself and honest with other people. It's a really wonderful quality. Often, um, there are things we find in us, because we are sinners, that can restrict our capacity for love. Things like fear and worry and anger, those things focus our attention where? Think about that. Fear, worry, anger. Where do they focus our attention? On ourselves. On ourselves. And that makes love more difficult. It impedes love. It restricts love. 
joy in the Lord allows us to love better because we are placing ourselves in God's hands and letting him worry about us. He doesn't have to worry because he knows everything. But you know what I'm saying. Give him our cares, as Peter says. So um, no matter our circumstances, we can give ourselves to God, and that frees us to love others well. Joy. Joy is a liberation of the human spirit. It gives us freedom to love. Frees us up to love well. Now, when we talk about joy, you got to remember, I'm not talking about a manufactured joy. I'm not talking about pretending everything's okay or anything like that. This is joy in the Lord that Paul's going to be talking about here. And that means it is a joy that flows out of a daily walk with Christ, a trust in him. And that level of joy, it has to be cultivated like a little plant. It has to be nurtured and grown and watered and taken care of and given light and all of those things. You have to cultivate joy in your heart. It just isn't going to be there unless you're just a super happy person, right? It's much harder to grasp onto joy in the middle of a crisis. But if you've cultivated joy in your heart all all the time, if that's a a regular part of your Christian walk, then when the crisis hits, you can find that joy. Even when you're very distraught and things are not going well, you can find that joy because you're used to it. So you want to cultivate joy so it's there when you need it. And you should be joyful all the time anyway. So what Paul's going to say here, these aren't just light, cheery words to end a letter with. Just, hey, God bless you all. Be joyful. He's talking about something very substantive here. So he's, his joy is spilling over into his love for the Philippians. And you can just see love just all through verse 1 here. Pay attention to the love words there. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown. In this way, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. Twice he calls them beloved, my beloved, agapitoi, the, the ones he loves. One of those, it's Adelphoi agapitoi, brother whom I love, the brothers that I love. So beloved, beloved brothers, all of that. He longs to see them. They are his joy and his crown. Wow, somebody wrote me a letter like that? I'd be really happy. And he's not just throwing it out there. This is how he really feels. So right now, they are a source of great joy for him. And they have been for years, ever since he planted that little church in Philippi, in Macedonia. And in the future, when Paul stands before Christ, he's going to receive a crown for having made disciples of Jesus among the Philippians. He shared the gospel with them. He nurtured their infant church. He always had them on his mind and in his heart, as he said in chapter 1, verse 3, and in verse 7. Paul genuinely loved them. And because he had complete confidence in Christ, he knew that on the day of Christ, he would be there with them and receive the crown. He says something similar to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2.19. He asked them, he says, Who is our hope? or joy, or crown of exaltation. Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord at his coming? There's going to be such a celebration and such a delight. And his mind could reach forward and embrace that future because of his strong faith in Jesus. He knew that was going to happen. It's a wonderful thought, too, just this idea of the future shared blessing in the presence of Christ, and then him be given a crown for all his work for the Lord and his faithfulness to the Lord. 
Now, the word for crown here isn't like a, a gold kingly crown with jewels all studded. It's, it's, it's a laurel wreath idea, Stephanos. It's, a, it's the crown that was given to athletes at the Olympic Games. It's temporary. It, uh, it's just, just for the moment. It's, it's not some glorious kingly thing. It's just a, you, are, you deserve accolades for your service and what you achieved. And that's the kind of crown he's looking for, forward to from Jesus that kind of crown. It's a recognition of fulfilling a great task and doing a good job. Okay then, so having seen Paul's great love for the Philippian believers, now let's look again at verse 1 and see what he tells them to do. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see my joy and my crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. That's it right there. Stand firm. What are they and what are we, by extension, as Christians, supposed to stand firm on? What's he telling them to stand firm about? Well, the clue, of course, is found in the first word of verse 1 here, which is the word therefore. So when Paul gets to his command, we look back because of the therefore. So if you see therefore or so then or something like that, it beckons us to look back to what preceded because it's what he's going to say now, stand firm, is flowing out of what he's already said in chapter 3. So we look back at chapter 3 and the topics there and how um, that chapter concludes, which leads right into chapter 4. Remember, never let chapter breaks in the Bible keep you from being aware of the context got a secret. Chapter breaks are not inspired. They're not. Somebody did that in the Middle Ages. So they put the chapters in. So, you know, this was just one long letter and uh, it flows beautifully. But, you know, it helps for us to find our place when we're looking for verses. But other than that, don't let chapter breaks make you think that there's a new subject. Sometimes there is, sometimes there isn't. The chapter breaks sometimes seem kind of arbitrary. But anyway, so here we are. We, we see the therefore, so we know to look back to chapter 3. We need to stand firm. Why? Because Paul said there are enemies, enemies of our king, enemies of his cross, Chapter 3, verse 18, many walk of whom I've often told you and now tell you even weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. In verse 19, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, whose glory is their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. So many have chosen to walk a path contrary to the cross contrary to the salvation that God brings to a lost world. They don't want it. They have their own path. They make their own way. Um, They've devised their own salvation, which is rooted in this world, and Paul says it ends in destruction. People who professed Jesus went down this path of being enemies of the cross. That's why Paul weeps over them. They didn't stand firm on the gospel, on what God has done through his son. They left that. So we have to guard against that. That's why he's telling us to stand firm. We have to guard ourselves against slipping away. I know people think, I would never do that. I would never slip away. But, you know, I I always wonder if those who were enemies of the cross of Christ, who are today enemies of the cross of Christ, who professed Christ at one time, 
if they once thought it couldn't be them. I always wonder that. Did they, did they think, I would never do that. I would never leave Jesus. I would never sacrifice the gospel or add to it or throw it away or anything like that. Did they think that at one time too? So we have to, we, we don't want to be overconfident about ourselves. I don't think I'd ever fall away. I can't imagine trading Jesus for anything, but I need to be on guard as well. And I need to stand firm because things could influence me that I'm not aware of right now. And they might come along, a circumstance, a person, an idea, all kinds of things. So I need to stand firm. I need to decide whose side I'm on and stand firm. So we have to guard ourselves. Standing firm is what a soldier does in the face of an enemy. I'm sure Paul had seen Roman soldiers practicing their tactics and their formations and things like that. And the whole thing about a Roman a legion was the shield wall. That's what they did. And the, the, if the wall has to maintain its integrity, everything was built around the shield wall. So they've got their shields. They're all connected up together. They're all lined up together. If somebody runs away, that whole thing could collapse. If somebody doesn't stand firm and falls down or slips, there's always a couple guys behind. There's usually like three people deep. But if they start to break or fall or not do their job, the whole thing's going to be destroyed. So standing firm is just this really clear idea of holding your part of the line as a, as a servant of Jesus Christ, our King. He puts you into service, you hold your place. You stand firm on these great truths and on being faithful to Him. So you can't withdraw, you can't run away, and you can't just go sit down somewhere because that means destruction. For a church and a community, you've got to hold your place. As a Christian serving King Jesus, don't break ranks. Don't slip, don't slide, don't sleep. Stand firm. Ephesians chapter 6, you know, Paul there uses the actual um, armor of a Roman soldier to describe the Christian faith, and he uses that imagery. Ephesians 6.10, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you, you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. So you're standing firm, not against a body, but against ideas, against schemes against you, schemes to trip you up. For our struggle, Paul says there, is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against powers, against world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything, to stand firm. It goes back to that idea over and over again. So a, a battle, a spiritual battle is raging all around us, and you have one major task. Hold your place. Stand firm. The last verses of uh, Philippians chapter 3 tell us what we're supposed to stand for, or on, as you might want to think about it. Paul says in verse 20 of Philippians 3, our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. And that's when Paul goes, therefore... Stand firm. So, folks, we are citizens of heaven. We are not in heaven. We are citizens of heaven on the corrupt, rebellious place 
called Earth, planet Earth. That makes us ambassadors of heaven, of God who made heaven and earth. But since earth is in rebellion against him, we are his ambassadors here. We represent him here in this place. So we need to look at our world and our lives in the light of these great spiritual realities. We need to conduct ourselves in view of the fact that there are enemies of the cross of Christ, that we are citizens of heaven, and we are waiting for Christ to return. So with that calling, we just have to stand firm. We have to stand firm. So yes, standing firm in a neo-pagan culture like ours will mean standing out. People are going to notice. That might mean being hated by the world and people where you work or people in your life, family even. It might mean that. There's always pressure. Just like if you're trying to hold that shield wall against the pressure of people attacking it, there's always pressure to compromise, pressure to give way, pressure to, to, to run, pressure to hide. But you can't do that. You have to hold your place. Lehman Strauss, the preacher says, defeatism, defeatism and instability have plagued the church since its inception. And that's true because we see it in the New Testament. Paul's writing to Christians that are wavering all the time. So it happens. Standing firm is essential. It's essential for our witness and it's essential for God to be glorified in our lives. He can't be glorified if we're not standing firm. So you must become self-aware and self-correcting, I hope, when you slip up. You need to take responsibility for that. When you withdraw from fellowship, people shouldn't have to hunt you down. You should correct yourself and say, I need to be back in church. When you're neglecting the Word of God, you should take it upon yourself to pick it up again and start over again. Even if you blow it many times and you say, I haven't been in the Word lately, get in the Word just a little bit every day. Let God's word saturate your mind and in your heart. Let him, let it govern you. Paul says in Colossians, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. That has to be happening. Care for other people, you should be doing that. Uh, put your own stuff down now and then and serve others. All of those things. So your own flesh and the devil himself are going to try to shake you, to have you sit down or sit out not be a part of what God wants you to do. Nothing pleases an enemy more than seeing the soldiers on the other side sitting down and dropping out or running away. That's what they want to see. That's what our enemy wants to see. But don't follow those impulses, however strong they are. Stand firm. Paul really likes the phrase, stand. I mean, he uses it all the time. He uses it about... He used it about unity in chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 27, he says, Stand firm in one spirit. Remember that? We stand together. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, 13, he says, Be on the alert. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Firm in the faith. So we're standing in our faith. Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, when the dogs were seducing the Galatian believers to give up their freedom of, in Christ for their rituals, Paul says to stand firm for your liberty in Christ. Galatians 5, 1. In 2 Thessalonians 2, 5, Paul says to stand firm on the teaching of the apostles, what they had 
taught them and handed down to them. They needed to stand firm on those things. So here in Philippians 4.1, it's just stand firm in the Lord. I like that because that's pretty comprehensive. If you're standing firm in the Lord, all those other things are going to be falling into place. So that brief sentence encompasses so many different things. Stand firm in the Lord. That means holding steady in our walk with him. It, it means being aware of his presence at all times. It means not trusting too much in ourselves, but relying on him and his grace and his strength to do our, the work that he wants us to do. It means being faithful to what the Lord says, to his word. It means faithful to our mission. It means not compromising our integrity for his sake and his glory, not, not going down any path that's going to undo what he's called us to. So then, as we move forward to verse 2, we're coming to a very specific problem in Philippi, which we talked about in chapter 2, which was disunity. There was a lack of unity in the church. So, so I want you to keep thinking about standing firm in the Lord as it relates to this problem. Because one way to stand firm in the Lord is to be a peacemaker in the body of Christ. That's one of the things you should stand on. I'm going to be a peacemaker in my church. Blessed are the peacemakers, Jesus said. So we have a specific case here. There's, there's two gals, Yodia and Syntyche, beautiful names. I haven't met too many Syntyches. I don't even think I know any Yodias, but um, those were pretty common Greek names, actually. These girls were mature saints. Not They weren't neophytes. They weren't new. They were well-known among um, the people in the church at Philippi when Paul was there. He knew them. Uh, they had served there when Paul was there. They were ministering women. They were um, participating in the work of the gospel. And they're still serving. Paul's been gone for years from Philippi. He hasn't been there. He's been in various prisons and being transported to Rome. And now he's in a Roman uh house under custody, and he hasn't seen these people for a long time, but he knows them. And he's heard, because Epaphroditus came from there and told him what was going on, that these two girls weren't getting along. They were not getting along. By the way, let me just say, if you're curious about the names, this is what they mean, just so you don't get focused on that. Euodia means prosperous journey. Kind of pretty. Hello, prosperous journey. And Syntyche means fortunate. So uh, these are names that were kind of were related to pagan gods that became common names. So Prosperous Journey and Fortunate are had a disagreement. Likely related to ministry. It doesn't say that specifically, but uh, probably. That's usually what happens in a church. And sparks flew between them, and they still haven't resolved it. It's been an open sore. So they've got to deal with that, and they haven't been dealing with it. So there's disunity going on. Sometimes these kind of breaks in relationships happen over trivialities. I mean, really unimportant stuff, like what color the carpet's going to be, how, what, how are we going to paint the Sunday school room? Uh, sometimes, though, very different philosophies of leadership or styles of leadership or approaches to certain situations in ministry can cause a broken relationship. People get angry with each other and they, um, they stop talking and there's all this tension. Different people have different styles of personal interaction and sometimes people get offended and then they're offended, they're not going to uh, talk to so-and-so or be nice to them or smile at them, and then the other person gets offended that they're offended and they don't talk to them back. Sometimes it's jealousy that causes these kind of situations. Whatever happens, it does happen sometimes. 
And it has to be addressed. It has to be lovingly addressed, confronted, because it's sin. And it's destructive to the unity of the church. And since Paul is writing a letter that might take six to eight weeks to get there to Philippi, he addresses the women personally, by name. So he's actually writing to them. So if somebody's reading this letter in the church, Yodia and Syntyche are sitting there and they're going to hear this. So verse 2, I urge Yodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Can you imagine sitting there hearing the letter read and then hearing your name and knowing you haven't been talking to the other person? And uh, that would be kind of amazing, huh? But he speaks to them equally. He actually uses the verb two times. He could say, I urge Yodia and Syntyche, but he says, I urge Yodia and I urge Syntyche. He's talking to both of them. So he's not assigning blame to one or the other. He's saying they both bear a responsibility to fix this disagreement or this break that has happened between them. So he's very careful to not choose sides. And he's asking both women to take the initiative in making peace. So now, bring back to your mind the importance of joy, what we were talking about with joy. Strife and unity are, disunity are joy killers. Strife and disunity are joy killers. A church loses joy when there's strife, and it just starts to happen. I've been in a situation like this. I've seen this happen in a church, and it just kind of permeates everything. And if it goes on, everyone gets used to church being a joyless place. I just I keep going, but it's just not fun to be there. It's not a delight. It's a duty. And it can be that way for years. Sometimes it can be that way for decades. Sometimes that just becomes the church culture. It's a joyless, unhappy place because of some conflict that happened in the past that's just cast a pall upon the spiritual life of the church body, and there's no happy people there. It's just a joyless place. That should not be. So we have a huge obligation as believers to to labor for unity in the body. As Paul said back in chapter 2, verse 1, he said, If there is any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Hopefully when Yodia and Syntyche heard chapter 2, they would have immediately run across the room and embraced each other when they heard that. So by the time he gets down to it, they go, oh, we've solved that by the time they're reading chapter 4. But where he says, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, See where joy comes in? Joy will be completed. It'll be at its highest point if they are of the same mind. And this is exactly the same word he uses in uh, Philippians 4.2 of being of the same mind. It's, It's translated in my Bible, live in harmony, but it's exactly the same word as same mind in chapter 2. So these two gals, 
need to be of the same mind. And that doesn't necessarily mean meaning they have to agree on the color of the classroom or whatever the thing was about that. It does mean they should assume the best intentions on the part of the other person, recognizing that other people do think differently than we do and have different opinions sometimes, and that's okay. And maybe if they were grumpy on one day, I can overlook that or I can forgive that. Or if they said something that was hurtful to me, I can seek to make amends and rebuild the relationship. It it means all that. It's not evil to have a different opinion about certain things, as long as it's not a key doctrinal issue, in which case the whole church would be involved in correcting that. But this this is something between them. It's just between two women. And it also means... Regarding the other person is more important than yourself. If, if everybody is laboring for these things and then has this heart that says, that other, that other person is more important than I am. It's pretty hard to maintain a divisive heart when you feel like the other person is more important than you. And if both people feel like the other person is more important than them, it's going to be healed and they're going to get along. That's how God wants us to be. So if both Yodia and Sintiki do this thing that he's asking them to do, to be of the same mind, to regard one another as more important than themselves, then, and if they pray that God would give them wisdom and open their hearts about how to approach each other, then unity is going to emerge. And unity is going to emerge between them without bitterness, if that's where their heart is. If they follow the prescriptions in Philippians to heal and to their their whole approach to other people, including each other, they're going to be together again, and they won't be bitter. It'll be a, a genuine Christian love between them. That's what he's hoping for. Uh, so um, I should mention as well that this phrase, live in harmony in the Lord, is not an excuse for the rejection of a brother or sister in Christ. So what are you talking about? Look, you've heard it, and I've heard it. I've done it, I think. Like, probably. I'm pretty sure I have. Yodia. Yeah, Yodia. You know, I really can't stand to be around her, but, um, you know, she's so two-faced and everything, but I do love her in the Lord. You ever heard somebody say that? Do you know how sinful human beings are? How sinful Christians can be? You can take the most heart-softening tender idea in the universe and twist it to justify you having a hard heart. You can take in the Lord and use that to justify you being hard-hearted to somebody. I love them in the Lord, but I really hate their guts. I'm pretty sure I've said that, something like that. We actually use the phrase, in the Lord, to express hostility, and that's not what it's here for. Uh, don't do that. The, the words, in the Lord, should always move you towards having a heart like Jesus. And I'm pretty sure that's not how Jesus behaved. That's a Pharisee heart that looks at other people that way. I love them in the Lord. That's a, that's a I'm superior, my spirituality is so awesome that I'm deigning to love them in some way in the Lord, but I really can't stand to be with them. I know some people are hard to get along with. That's just true. Difficult to love. They, some people are more challenging to love than, than other people. And th- some people are not the first person you think of for a, going out on a night with friends and going to dinner. 
But don't say, I love them in the Lord as an attack on them, to belittle them in the eyes of other people. Jesus would not do that and don't do that. To love someone in the Lord means to love them as Jesus would. That's what that means. So love is, regarding other people, is more important than ourselves. Love is seeking the best for the other person. It desires good for them. I mean, it really desires good for them. It blesses them. Does that make sense? Good. Okay, I had to say that. Now we can move forward. (laughs) So these ladies needed to be genuinely loving each other in Christ, and they were both convinced that they were so right that neither would take the first step towards reconciliation. So, you know, if that happens in a church, what do you do? Well, I, I guess we pray about it and just hope for the best, right? I, I guess so. No, that's not what you do. You should pray about it, but you shouldn't stop there. You need to help them. You need to help them. You step in. Unity is so important in the church that heart attitudes dividing people cannot be left unaddressed. It has to be addressed. So, look at verse 3. Paul says, Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. So, right off, I should point out that uh, true companion in verse 3 probably is a name, different Bible translations handle that differently, and scholars disagree about that. Um, but probably it's a name, just like Clement is a name. And his name would be Susagos, which is kind of a funny name but um, for us. But that means yoke fellow, or Susagos means a companion, something like that. So Paul, in calling him the true Susagos, or true companion, might be kind of playing with his name. He actually does that in the book of Philemon. He takes somebody's name and he kind of plays with it to make a point. And I think he's doing that here. He would say, companion, be a true companion and help these girls out. I think that's what he's saying here. It's like that idea. So it's interesting that he's actually naming individuals to help these women reconcile. You know, Paul knows these people. He knows these men and who would make a good choice for this task. Maybe they were elders. We don't know. And then Paul more generally calls upon other fellow workers. So people that he knows that he's worked with at Philippi, he's inviting all of them as well as these two guys to help these two gals to to pitch in and encourage them and uh, make peace. So I suspect these are people who were there when Paul founded the church or early on in the stages of developing the church that he can rely on. Faithful, faithful individuals with a history of laboring in Christ together. That's why he calls them fellow workers. So the takeaway is we need to be responsible, to take responsibility, to speak truth to each other and to correct each other. We need to do that about all of our sins. When we see a brother or sister in sin, we need to take the initiative and lovingly correct them about that. Uh, We shouldn't be shy about that. We should be humble, but we shouldn't be shy. We shouldn't say, no, I'm not going to do that. So we go to them, you know. Sister Yodia, you know, your problem with Sintiki, it really needs to be resolved. This tension has has led to the loss of joy in our church family. 
It's, it's sapped our capacity to rejoice and serve with just unfettered compassion and love for one another. It, it's a cloud hanging over our fellowship in Christ. And you two need to really come to an understanding and love each other and despite your differences. And I am here to help you do that. That's the conversation that needs to happen. And with Sintiki too. And as people work with these two women, hopefully they'll come and they'll be reconciled together. So we come then to verse 4 and the grand theme of the book of Philippians again. Rejoice in the Lord. Again, I will say rejoice. Why is he throwing that in there again? He's talking about joy all the time. Because of what we said earlier when we started this morning, joy feeds love. You can't have true joy in the Lord and love not start to flow out of that. You can claim to have joy in the Lord without love. I mean, that's what self-righteous people do. But you can't have real joy in the Lord if, and, and it not move you toward loving other people. You just can't do that. It, it'll move you towards reconciliation. So rejoice. Rejoice, people. If you rejoice in the Lord, reconciliation is easy. Because you don't have to win. You're happy. You don't have to win any arguments or be on top or have your way or anything like that. You're rejoicing in the Lord. You don't have to be placated. A, a joyful person who is wronged easily lets offenses fall away. They don't take it to heart. They don't hold grudges. They, they can't because they're, they have so much joy in the Lord. Verse 5 Paul really gives definition to what we're talking about here. Let your gentle spirit be made known to all men. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. There's really no English word that captures what the New American Standard translates as gentle spirit. It doesn't use the word gentle. It doesn't use the word spirit. It's a, it's a Greek word that has a, a, a meaning. It definitely has a meaning and, and translators are always trying to figure out a good way to say it in English. So there's lots of different suggestions for that. Um, geniality, forbearance is a common one, charitableness, magnanimity. I love that word. That sounds like it's a cool word. All sorts of words. I like William Hendrickson's word the best. He, he, want, he would translate it big-heartedness, big-heartedness, having a big heart. He also likes sweet reasonableness as a way to translate this word, which really has no direct translation. So big-hearted, I think, is good. I really like that. And I'm sure you know the idea. Some people are just so big-hearted, they don't take offense very easily at all. And for us, this is way more than happiness, just being a happy disposition. It's rejoicing in the Lord. When you can rejoice in the Lord, it, it gives you a big heart. And it's easy to forgive or overlook uh, mistakes or weaknesses in other people. It's not a personality trait. I mean, it might be broadly speaking like that, but that's not what Paul's talking about. Joy in the Lord is not a personality trait. It's, it's a cultivated joy by walking with him every day, knowing him and knowing his attributes and delighting in him and the sacrifice that he made for our sins and his care and love and compassion towards us all through our lives. It's, it's delighting in his mercy to a sinner like me. I can rejoice in that every day. And that should spill over into a pretty big-hearted approach to other people. How can a creep like me be big-hearted? How can that happen? Well, how can I not be that way knowing that God loved me so much he sent his son into the world to die for my sins, that he accepts me in Christ? 
how can I withhold being big-hearted towards other people when God has been that way with me? What can I deny to other people that God has given me? How can I do that? So he forgives. He still loves me despite my too-many-to-count ways of messing up or blowing it or moving away from him and all my failures in my life as a Christian. God still loves me and he's still taking care of me and growing me and challenging me and um, wants me to wants me to be with him every day in his presence through prayer and in his word. God's love for us is the spring out of which joy flows. And that makes you a big-hearted person. And that joy embraces everybody around you. Ah, Joy doesn't come naturally. It comes from knowing God personally. That's what you have to do. I'm going to close with a couple paragraphs from my favorite pastor, J.R. Miller, who lived a long time ago, back in Civil War days. But he says this, Joy is God's ideal for his children. He means for them to be sunny-faced and happy-hearted. He does not wish them to be heavy-hearted and sad. He has made the world full of beauty and full of music. The mission of the gospel is to start songs wherever it goes. Its keynote is joy, good tidings of great joy to all people. We are commanded to rejoice always. This does not mean that the Christian life is exempt from trouble, pain, and sorrow. The gospel does not give us a new set of conditions with the hard things left out. The Christian's home is not sheltered from life's storms any more than the worldly man's home is. Sickness enters the circle where the voice of prayer is heard with its hot breath, as well as the home where no heart adores and no knees uh, bend before God. In the holiest home sanctuary, the loving group gathers about the bed of death. And there is, no, there is sorrow of bereavement. But the joy of the Christian is something which lies too deep to be disturbed by the waves and tides of earthly trouble. It has its source in the very heart of God. Sorrow is not prevented by grace, but is swallowed up in the floods of heavenly joy. That's what Jesus meant when he talked to his disciples of joy just as he was about to go out to Gethsemane. He said their sorrow would be turned into joy and that they would have a joy which the world could not take from them. That is a joy which earth's deepest darkness could not put out. God's joy is not the absence of sorrow, but divine comfort overcoming sorrow. Sunshine striking through the black clouds, transfiguring them. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. John 16, 20, the words of Jesus. Let's pray. Our great Father, teach us joy. Let us find it in you and your steady, saving love and mercy towards all who call upon you. Fill our hearts so that insults or perceived slights will not shrink our hearts, but provide deeper opportunities for love to flow out of the joy that you give us. Grow us in grace. Help us to stand firm. Make us peacemakers. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
God bless you. We'll see you next time.